This is episode number 67 of the Individual One podcast. For the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. And I am your host, John Ziegler. We are broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, and distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. This is the bi-weekly program which takes an honest and hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump from a conservative perspective, because unfortunately no one else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him. And unlike the corporate media, we here at the Individual One Podcast have most definitely not been compromised or co-opted. Welcome to the program. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. Follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at individual1pod. That's individual, the number one pod. The impeachment process is heating up. Uh, last week, we uh, talked about the fact that the, the House of Representatives has officially voted to approve an impeachment inquiry, one that was already ongoing, but now it's officially been voted by a majority of the House of Representatives. And this week, the focus is on the transcripts of some of these closed-door testimonies being released to the public. And within the last 24 hours, much of the focus there has been on the testimony, the revised testimony, of the ambassador to the European Union, Gordon Sutherland. Now, Gordon Sutherland is an interesting character in all of this, one of of many, but right now he is a a key player because let's go back to who he was. He was not an original Trump supporter, which right right off the bat tells you that he at least has some semblance of rationality. So he was not a Trump cult member, but he's a super rich guy, and he wanted to get in on, you know, the grift, uh, get in on the administration. This is who knows how many more Republican administrations there's going to be. There may not be any in many of our lifetimes after this disaster. And uh, he decided that the only way to get back into Trump's good graces and therefore get access to power, prestige and whatever else might go along with it in this very corrupt administration is to pay one million dollars. $1 million to Trump's inaugural committee. It's just flat out ridiculous. So that's what Sunland did. Sunland decides, you know what? In order to absolve myself from my past sins of not supporting Donald Trump throughout the entire campaign, $1 million ought to do it. It's a nice round number. And in Trump's world, that's the language you have to speak. So as soon as he gives $1 million to Trump's inaugural committee, magically, just magically, he ends up as the ambassador to the European Union, which, by the way, shouldn't have any relevance to the whole Ukrainian scandal because Ukraine is not part of the European Union. But that just shows you the way things work or, or, or allegedly work within the Trump administration, especially when you're doing corruption under the guise of fighting corruption, which is what this whole scandal is really all about. So Sunlin is a guy who I had some semblance of hope for in telling the truth, because, yeah, obviously, if you're willing to pay one million dollars in a transactional relationship to get in on the good side of Donald Trump, you, you know, you're you're, ob- you're you're basically saying you're a prostitute, right? It's just you're arguing over the price. However, the fact that he was not somebody who was on board with Trump right away gave me some semblance of hope that, okay, maybe just maybe there's something there, uh, some semblance of integrity. And his original testimony wasn't that great. Uh, it, it was very vague. Uh, he, you know, he pretended uh, to, to adopt a narrative that really wasn't all that bad for Donald Trump. He didn't remember some things, apparently. Well, now all of a sudden we've learned that his testimony, after the testimony of others, have made him vulnerable to a possible perjury charge, he has magically suddenly remembered. <laughs> He's now suddenly remembered what was really going on with regard to this issue of the Ukraine and a potential quid pro quo and whether or not military aid to the Ukraine was being held up uh, in exchange for a deal that the Ukraine would either investigate the Bidens or at the very least announce that they were going to investigate the Bidens. And that's a really important distinction. And it and it's one of those things that at first glance, 
sounds like it diminishes the, the level of scandal because it appears based upon Sutherland's revised testimony that what was really happening here was Trump wanted the Ukrainian president or the Ukrainian government to put out a statement, a statement saying they're opening an investigation into the Bidens for corruption or whatever uh, because of this company that Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's son, used to be a member of the board of directors of, and Joe Biden uh, was uh, instrumental in carrying out U.S. policy to get rid of a prosecutor who, it's important to point out, was not was not investigating this company that Hunter Biden was the director for. But don't let the facts get in the way of a good narrative if you're uh, a Trump supporter. But, But Trump only really wanted, apparently, a statement from the Ukrainian government saying they were going to investigate the Bidens. Correct. This is one of those situations where you have to think it through because... It sounds maybe to some people like, well, that's not that big of a deal. They're not even actually asking for a real investigation. They just want a statement. No, 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 no. That really tells you an awful lot about, first of all, who Trump is as a person. He doesn't give a crap about the substance. Just give me the talking point. That's all he wants is the talking point. Correct. He just wants to be able to go to his rallies and say that uh, the Ukrainian government is investigating the Bidens for corruption. And he wants his state-run media to be able to repeat that that bogus uh, talking point 10,000 times. Correct. That's all he wants. But it also, when you think this through, destroys one of the Trump talking points, their own talking points, which is somehow that what Trump was really doing here was trying to get Ukraine to fight corruption. Well, no, that can't be true if all you wanted was a statement as opposed to an actual investigation. So it's all a sham. It's, it's all just for show. It's all just to muddy the waters and to try to smear Joe Biden in a way that will bring him back down to earth in comparison to the other Democratic candidates because Trump knows Biden crushes him. And the numbers show that. Well, if you dirty him up a little bit with just a little perception and you make this Hillary's emails 2.0, then all of a sudden everything changes. And maybe Joe Biden loses his superpower in general election head-to-head polling. That's what Trump wanted. And so now, with Sutherland's revised testimony, it's very, very clear, as was becoming the case already, that there indeed was a quid pro quo. That the quid pro quo was as clear as you could be, although, to be fair, Sutherland says that he assumed that that was the case. But that's... That's purposely vague language because he's still trying to thread a needle that's probably not threadable where uh, he doesn't piss off Trump. He doesn't hang Trump totally out to dry, but he also uh, gets himself out of potential perjury charges. And there might be some semblance of him that actually wants to tell the truth. But based upon what we currently know, when you combine Sunland's testimony with with that of Bill Taylor's and Lieutenant Colonel Vidman's, it's very clear that there was a quid pro quo here. The quid pro quo was, hey, look, you want your military aid to fight off the Russians? Uh, Here's what you got to do. You at least got to put out a statement saying that the Ukrainian government is investigating the Bidens for corruption. There was even a text message with a statement that was provided, a theoretical statement that the Ukrainian government would use in this circumstance, had they, uh, this quid pro quo actually ever gone through. And there's also, by the way, a, uh, an argument that's being made. I, I mean, I can't believe that this is, has any validity, but it's the Trump people. So, heck, we're, we're living in an upside down world. But there are actually people who are trying to claim on behalf of Trump that, you know what, it doesn't really matter because the quid pro quo never actually came to fruition. In other words, the bomb never actually went off. So I guess then, in theory, if you plant a bomb and you try to detonate it, and you try to detonate it over several weeks and months of time, but circumstances prevent that from actually happening, somehow that's not a crime? That you shouldn't be held accountable for that? 
I mean, serious people are actually trying to make this argument. And I would even go further and say, you know what? The bomb did go off just in a way that was not anticipated because guess what has happened? The, the, the Biden rumor of corruption in Ukraine is having an impact. It is being seen by some people, just as I predicted it might be, that as Hillary Clinton's emails 2.0, that this is a situation where, well, we don't really understand it, but we hear a lot about it. And I don't want, you know, is, is Biden too risky to nominate against Trump? And there is evidence that it's diminishing his polling numbers, both in the Democratic primary as well as in head-to-head matchups in key states against Donald Trump. So the bomb did go off, just not in the way as that was anticipated, but in a way that might be almost as effective. Now, it's also going to get Donald Trump impeached, but that was you know possible already. So you know, in, in the impeachment, we don't know exactly how that's going to work out uh, politically. So in a rational world, a quid pro quo has now been proven, all right? That is as obvious as it can get from anybody who actually bothers to read the transcripts. Now, I wrote a column, which you can find at our Twitter handle uh, for Mediate yesterday, about how uh, these transcripts, as damaging as they're going to be, and it's obvious that they would be, are largely irrelevant because we no longer live in a world where the written word matters very much. Correct. Trump understands this. We're living in a video world. We're living in a live video world. If it doesn't happen in front of our eyes and if it doesn't impact our, uh, us directly in some way, then it's largely irrelevant. And transcripts just don't cut it. I mean, if there's nothing we learned from the, the Mueller investigation and how that turned out, where almost all of that was on the written page until finally Robert Mueller got a chance to testify and crapped the bed. Uh, I'm not going to get into that. Uh, we learned that the written word doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what's in a report that no one reads because no one has the time, the inclination, that a lot of people don't have the brain power to understand it. They can't uh, put all the dots together. Context is dead and it doesn't matter. And then when you finally get a chance to go on television and you got an old man whose balls have shriveled up, it doesn't, there's no, there's, there's no payoff. I'm not going to get into that. And so uh, I am one of those people who thinks, okay, these transcripts are interesting and boy, there's been some bat crap, crazy elements of it, like like the Sean Hannity parts that we've learned this week. I mean, really, Sean Hannity, the State Department, potentially the, the, the Secretary of State telling the ambassador to the Ukraine, Yovanovitch, that uh, to find out whether or not she's going to get fired from her job, we should ask Sean Hannity. You cannot be serious. I mean, th- that's something that's actually been testified to. In these transcripts. Really? I mean, come on, people. It's just flat out ridiculous. Sean Hannity, Fox News Channel uh, host, someone who I've had a lot of interaction with, one of the dumbest people who has ever been successful in media. And by the way, you don't need to be smart to be successful in media. It's actually a detriment to be smart in the modern media. But Sean Hannity is universally known within talk radio and opinion television as one of the dumbest people on air. Correct. And yet here he is in a position where the State Department is going to him to find out the status of ambassadors. Ambassador Yovanovitch also was told that in order to salvage her job, because she wasn't going along with this whole quid pro quo, that she should probably tweet something nice about Donald Trump. Correct. What? What? Come on. You cannot be serious. I'm not making this up. This is all testimony under oath that if the American people saw it in a video form, uh, might actually have an impact. But it's not going to have an impact in a transcript because we don't care about the written word. And so it's important to keep all of that in its proper context and proportion because none of this is going to move the needle. The people that are already paying attention have already been convinced that there was a quid pro quo and that this is really bad news and this is a horrendous precedent to be setting and this is absolutely an impeachable offense. And in a remotely rational world, one of those people who would understand that is Senator Lindsey Graham. 
Republican from South Carolina, who is the chairman of the Judiciary Committee and someone who I've talked an awful lot about uh, on this podcast because he is somebody who I used to have a lot of respect for. When it came to Bill Clinton's impeachment back in 1998, 1999, Lindsey Graham led the charge. He was a protector of the Constitution. He was somebody who believed in right and wrong. He believed that a president obstructing justice and committing perjury while in office disqualified him from holding that office, even if it was something about something as as seemingly uh, insignificant as covering up an affair with a White House intern. That's what Lindsey Graham believed. Now, I later learned, as I've mentioned numerous times, that when it came to the Senate trial for that impeachment, that Lindsey Graham was the first one to, to stab his colleagues, the House impeachment managers, in the back and to cave and to allow that trial to be a sham because he wanted a promotion. He wanted to go from being a member of the House of Representatives in South Carolina to being a senator from South Carolina, and he felt like this was the best way for him to achieve that. It worked for him, and he's been a senator ever since. And he pretended to be John McCain's best friend, and then as soon as John McCain died— it's like John who? I mean, John McCain is rolling over in his grave looking at, assuming he's able to. I hope he is, although I doubt it as agnostic, but that's another story for another day. But if there is such a thing as rolling over in your grave, John McCain is rolling over in his grave looking at what his old fake friend, Lindsey Graham, has done with regard to not just being a Trump sycophant, but going head over heels backwards in an effort to contort himself to find a way to defend Donald Trump against things that if Bill Clinton or Barack Obama had ever done them or anything close to them, he would have been leading the charge for their impeachment and removal from office. Correct. It's, it's absolutely unquestionable. And what's interesting about Lindsey Graham on this whole Ukrainian situation is that Graham when this story first broke, okay, when we first learned about the transcript of the phone call, Lindsey Graham did something that I think he probably thought was very smart. He decided to set the goalposts in a place where he did not think they could be reached, right? So if you set the goalposts right off the bat at a, at a standard, a burden of proof, and a standard of, of bad behavior that you don't think it's possible Trump could reach. Even Trump couldn't do it. Then you are setting yourself up for a situation where you can defend him to the mat because you're setting the rules. You're setting the rules in a way that you don't think even your guy as bad and as dumb and as corrupt as Lindsey Graham has to know that he is. You're setting the rules up to where he can't reach those goalposts. So let's go back to when we saw the transcript of the phone call, the infamous transcript that's not a full transcript, but it appears to be an almost full transcript that, in my opinion, is very damaging because of phrases like, uh, can you do me a favor, though, where he is clearly, Trump is, clearly telling the Ukrainian president in a very mob-like fashion, Hey, look, uh, you know, aid's coming your way, but can you do me a favor, though, on two things, this uh, this uh, email server, the CrowdStrike thing, and also I need you to investigate uh, the, the Bidens for corruption uh, with regard to this Ukrainian company. This was Lindsey Graham back then answering a question about his response to seeing that transcript. Get your reaction to this transcript of the phone call being released. Uh, underwhelming. Uh, if you're looking for a circumstance where the President of the United States was threatening the Ukraine with cutting off aid unless they investigate his political opponent, you would be very disappointed. That does not exist. So, from my point of view, to impeach any president over a phone call like this would be insane. All right. Now, I disagree with that. But that was where Lindsey Graham was setting the goalposts back when the transcript came out. He bet wrong because we now know in a rational world that there was a quid pro quo, that it could not be more clear Everybody knew about it. There was a shadow State Department that was trying to get this done, run by Rudy Giuliani. 
And we have numerous people from within the administration. This is not the whistleblower, some anti-Trump person. This is being led by people who are heroes, like Lieutenant Colonel Vidman, people with great reputations, like Ambassador Bill Taylor, people who gave a million dollars to Trump's inaugural committee, like Gordon Sondland. These are all people telling a very, very similar story. Well, now, Lindsey Graham, this is today has now fallen back on much the same defense that a lot of Trump sycophants used in the Russian investigation. Well, you know what? The Trump people are just so incompetent. They're just so incompetent. They were not capable of a quid pro quo. Now, Lindsey Graham has said that he's going to not read the transcripts. He's done. He's going to put his fingers in his ears, his hands over his eyes. Don't tell me about any of this. I don't want to hear it. And here's where he is now on this issue of the quid pro quo and the Trump policy to try to get Ukraine to investigate the Bidens, or at least say they were going to investigate the Bidens in exchange for our U.S. military aid, which, by the way, Graham and the rest of Congress voted for. Here was Lindsey Graham today. What I can tell you about the Trump policy toward the Ukraine, it was incoherent. It depends on who you talk to. They seem to be incapable of forming a quid pro quo. Well, isn't that comforting? Isn't that comforting? That really is the last bastion of scoundrels in the defense of Donald Trump. You know what? Okay, I don't know if there really was a quid pro quo or not. Depends on who you talk to, which isn't really true. But but if you're going to try to uh, to spin it, okay, fine. Uh, so you can always find in any transcript, you can always find something that you like in hours and hours of testimony. Uh, and so so you're going to pretend that it depends on who you talk to, whether it's a quid pro quo. But I just think the Trump policy on Ukraine was so incoherent that it was not possible for the Trump people to engage in a quid pro quo. Well, OK, uh, are you not, Lindsey Graham, making a hell of an argument that Trump is unfit to be president of the United States? Correct. I mean, it, and, and certainly should not be reelected for another four years with, with no accountability with the voters? Correct. I mean, why in the world would we want this guy to be president? If you, I mean, it, it, if you're unable, if your argument is he's not capable of engaging in a quid pro quo and that therefore he can't be impeached and removed from office, that's as low as it gets. I mean, it, even by Lindsey Graham standards, that's pretty pathetic. Uh, and I don't know whether or not that dog's going to hunt or not. I mean, it'll hunt within the Republican Senate, which is all that matters because that's the, the jury for the coming impeachment trial. But it's it's pathetic. And uh, and it's and it's really emblematic of how pathetic so many people who I used to at least have a modicum of respect for have become in their never ending desire to kiss Trump's ass. And what's really phenomenally mind-blowing about all of this is how many of these sycophants happen to be people who used to be Trump critics, people who ran against Trump in the 2016 Republican primary. Lindsey Graham is one of, if not the worst examples, but Rand Paul is another one. Rand Paul is a guy, a senator from Kentucky, libertarian. I consider myself to be a libertarian conservative. I've never thought he was, you know, the be all end all, but I thought, okay, of Republican senators, he at least believes in something. He at least believes in the constitution. He's willing to vote on principle. He, he's against uh, 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 runaway government spending. He believes in, in freedom and, and liberty. So I would have put him in the top 10 list of my favorite uh, U.S. senators. And he ran against uh, Trump. He got ridiculed by Trump for his looks and his lack of height and his hair. And uh, and uh, and he had no love for Donald Trump at all. He criticized him just like Lindsey Graham did as being unfit for the office. And yet here, here Rand Paul is not just willing to keep supporting Donald Trump. He is now willing to go out and publicly humiliate himself and and urinate all over constitutional principles in a desperate effort to not just defend Trump, but to do his bidding on this issue of the identity of the whistleblower. 
Now, let's be clear. Let's be clear about this whole whistleblower obsession by Trump. The reason why he's obsessed with the identity of the whistleblower is Trump has no rational argument for defending himself. So what he needs is people to know who the whistleblower is. One, either because it's never going to be known and the mystery is good enough for the cult. Oh, why won't they tell us who the whistleblower is? Or it will be known and they're going to find out that the guy's a Democrat, which is not surprising. But somehow the whistleblower being a Democrat or once having, you know, tangentially worked for Joe Biden or something or with Joe Biden is is somehow discrediting of the entire investigation. The whistleblower is irrelevant now. Correct. Because it's been, first of all, the whistleblower, as we were told when this story broke by the Trump people, oh, there, he was not a, a first-hand witness to anything. Okay, fine. Well, now we have on the record testimony from plenty of first-hand witnesses. The whistleblower is no longer relevant. This was just the person that filed the complaint that made it into a public issue, which then facilitated the investigation, which then got the firsthand witnesses on the record under oath in congressional testimony and resulted in the House of Representatives voting to approve an impeachment inquiry. So he's irrelevant. He's the guy who called 911. The guy who called 911 in a in a in a murder or a burglary or whatever, they're irrelevant once everything out, all the other evidence is is on the record. But they want to be able to fool the cult. They want to be able to convince you know the, the people that uh, who are just looking for any breadcrumb. It doesn't take much to support Trump. You know these people. I love the poorly educated. They want to be able to say, aha. The, this all began with a Democrat, a guy who, you know, once gave uh, $50 to Joe Biden, something crazy like that, as if that would discredit everything else we know. But Rand Paul has gone out and now made a crusade. He didn't just make a he didn't just tweet about it. He didn't just make one comment about it. It's now a crusade. By, for Rand Paul to out the identity of the whistleblower, which he says he knows, yet oddly hasn't said yet. Uh, and here was Rand Paul at a rally in Kentucky with the president of the United States doing his bidding, effectively working as his blocking back in a football game where he's trying to blow hope, open a hole for Trump to run through. Uh, here was Rand Paul just the other day. The whistleblower needs to come before Congress as a material witness because he worked for Joe Biden at the same time Hunter Biden was getting money from corrupt oligarchs. I say tonight to the media, do your job and print his name. <laughs> what? Do your job and print the whistleblower's name. You cannot be serious. Let's speak very clear. The reason why there is a whistleblower law is to protect the anonymity of people so that they can feel safe in reporting corrupt, potentially criminal behavior that they are aware of. If you are not able to rely on your anonymity, then nobody in the future is ever going to come forward and be a whistleblower because we're not living in a world where people's reaction to the identity of whistleblower is going to be, oh, wow, that's interesting. Huh. Uh, let, let's take a reasonable look at his or her biases and uh, let's evaluate their relevance in the overall scheme of the investigation. No, 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 no. That is not what the reaction is going to be. The reaction from the cult is going to be potentially very dangerous uh, because this is a cult. And the cult knows that uh, Donald Trump is targeting this whistleblower. And uh, that could mean bodily harm. I mean, that's not an exaggeration. And even just the threat of bodily harm uh, is certainly enough to have an enormous chilling effect on whether or not people will come forward and whether or not this whistleblower will actually testify to Congress. I mean, it is scary stuff, but it's particularly scary stuff coming from someone like Rand Paul. 
And let's be clear, I think Rand Paul is the one who is being chosen to do this job because he actually would have some theoretically theoretical credibility on issues like this. He is completely misstating what the law is, what the Constitution says. He's claiming somehow that uh, that Trump has the constitutional right to meet his accuser. Well, first of all, the whistleblower is not his accuser. Second of all, the impeachment process is not a normal criminal process. And by the way, even if it was at this stage, no accuser, no, no accused person would have the right to meet their accuser. That's at trial, which is in the Senate. We're not there yet. But they're comparing apples and oranges in order to confuse stupid people. I love the poorly educated. That's that's what they're doing here. And let's also be clear. I mentioned just a few minutes ago, isn't it interesting that Rand Paul has not revealed the name that he claims to know? Now, let's just pretend he actually does know the name. I don't know if he does it or not, does or not. But let's presume that he does. I would love, and I have not seen this happen yet, I would love somebody to ask Rand Paul, okay, you think that it's perfectly legitimate for the media to print his name. You don't believe that the whistleblower has any right to anonymity, even though that's at the heart of the whistleblower law. Why don't you, Rand Paul, give the name? What is preventing you from outing the whistleblower? Why? If there's nothing wrong with it, then why don't you reveal the name? Well, I would suggest that there's really only two explanations for why. Uh, One is he doesn't really know the name. Or two, that he knows it's wrong and that his real job here is to simply provide cover for someone else to do the dirty work. He doesn't want to be the person that actually does it because he knows it's wrong. But by making a big show and by jumping on this hand grenade for Donald Trump, he is allowing somebody else to potentially do it. He's providing cover. That's what this is about. This is all about providing cover for somebody else to do Trump's dirty work. This is a part of a process. This is a process by by Rand Paul creating this narrative that it's okay. Eventually, we are desensitized enough to go, oh, well, maybe it's okay. And then when someone finally does it, our outrage meter is diminished. That's what this is about. This is all a process. This is a strategy. And Rand Paul is being used. He's being willingly used to do dastardly deeds on behalf of a guy he knows is unfit to be president and who is a liberal con man who doesn't believe in any of the things that he believes in, has blown apart the federal budget. I mean, the guy's the guy actually has a book out right now warning about socialism when, uh, frankly, Donald Trump has done more things on behalf of socialism than, you, than maybe even Barack Obama did when he had a Republican Congress. So it's just you, every time you think there's there's uh, no new bottom, there's a new bottom. And, uh, you know, all sorts of things about this whistleblower are beyond outrageous. One of the things that I find flat out hilarious and very telling is that Trump himself has said that the whistleblower should not be allowed to just give written answers to Congress, that they need to appear in person to provide testimony. And, you know, part, part of this is about their identity. But, well, of course, the other part about this is, hold on a second. Whoa, 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 whoa. Donald Trump, who promised to do an in-person interview with Robert Mueller. Uh, I'm not going to get into that. And who then reneged on that promise and provided written answers over a months and months period of time for his lawyers to prepare those written answers where he said dozens of times, I don't remember, to things that he clearly remembered. I'm not going to get into that. This is the guy? This is the guy. The guy who wimped out. And of all the many elements, there's two elements of the Russian investigation I will never get over. 
that most people don't know that Donald Trump to this day was trying to build a Trump Tower in Moscow while he was the Republican presidential nominee. That's number one. And number two, that somehow he got away with promising to do an interview and then not doing an interview and providing written answers where he said dozens of times, I don't remember the things he clearly remembered. Those two elements of the investigation, of all of them, are the most mind-blowing to me, that Donald Trump got away with that. And here he is now doing a a quadruple flip of hypocrisy, saying that the whistleblowers should not be allowed to provide written answers. The president of the United States, after promising to do a direct interview with Robert Mueller, did exactly that and lied and lied. And Mueller did nothing about it. Uh, I'm not going to get into that. But the whistleblower, no, 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 they can't give their written answers. Now, the, the key person in all of this and how it's going to go forward, of course, is Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, Republican in the Senate. And he's from Kentucky. And I, he's a guy who I know a little bit. I actually attended a football game back when I was a talk show host in Louisville with Mitch McConnell. And I uh, didn't really like him. Uh, Mitch McConnell screwed me over uh, on, a, on a situation in, in Louisville that tell me a lot about who he is as a person. Uh, I've always thought of him as a, an expert vote counter and a strategist within the Senate, but he is not someone who really believes in anything other than political power. I also am very good friends with uh, Congressman John Yarmuth, another a Democrat from Louisville, Kentucky, who has been a longtime rival of Mitch McConnell and loathes Mitch McConnell. So my view of Mitch McConnell has never been positive, other than the fact that I think he's a good strategist from a Republican standpoint. And being a lifelong Republican, there have been times in which I thought it was good that Mitch McConnell was in that position because he's he's good at that. He's good at making the buses run on time. He gets his judicial nominees through. Uh, he got uh, Brett Kavanaugh confirmed in the in, from the Senate uh, under long odds, so he's good about that stuff. But he's the guy who is going to basically determine whether or not there's any chance at all of removing Donald Trump from office because that's where this trial is going to be in the Senate, where he is the leader. Now the Senate trial will be run by the the chief justice of the Supreme Court, but McConnell is still going to play a huge role. And obviously no one's going to vote to get rid of Donald Trump unless McConnell signals that that's okay, or probably wouldn't happen unless he said that's what should happen. So McConnell holds the key here and McConnell is up for reelection next year in Kentucky, which is why it's particularly interesting that Kentucky held a gubernatorial election last night and get this, The guy Trump endorsed, the Republican incumbent, lost. Now, he didn't lose by much, but he lost in what was considered a pretty major upset. Trump actually went to Kentucky at the last minute to campaign for the Republican incumbent, who was favored and yet still lost, even in Kentucky. Now, there are those who are, I think, over-interpreting what this means for Trump. I get that this looks bad on surface. You have a Republican incumbent who, by the way, is kind of Trump-like. He's he's not particularly well-liked personally. He's abrasive. Uh, you know, there, there's a lot of reasons not to like him on a personal level. And he loses as an incumbent to a Democrat in a very Republican state and where Trump just campaigned for him. All that is bad. I mean, Trump himself said, if if, the, if this guy loses, it's going to make me look bad. Don't do this to me. He told the crowd that. And the guy ended up losing anyway. But let me, as someone who cares about the truth, let me give you the other side of this. Kentucky, having lived there, worked there, and obviously still very good friends with the only Democrat in Congress from Kentucky, John Yarmouth, I can tell you, Kentucky is a weird state. John and I have talked about this a lot, where it's very, very difficult to interpret polling in Kentucky because maybe more than any other state, other than maybe West Virginia, West Virginia is very much like this too. There's a weird phenomenon where culturally, from a generational standpoint, you know, my my daddy was a Democrat, his daddy was a Democrat. There are a lot of people who still culturally consider themselves to be Democrats. They identify as Democrats. They tell a pollster, I'm a Democrat. 
But when it comes to voting, they don't like voting for Democrats anymore because the Democrats of their daddy and their granddaddy's party, that's long gone. And by the way, frankly, there's some racism involved in this, too. But that's another story for another day. The bottom line of where I'm going with this is there are a lot of people who identify as Democrats, but who vote Republican, especially on a federal level for president and and also in the Senate. And so the idea that that these people would vote for a Democrat for governor does not necessarily mean that these are types of people that would vote for a Democrat for president. And there's a major reason for that. What's the number one thing that exists on the federal level but does not exist on the state level? The military. Being commander in chief. And so I mean, no one's arguing that Trump is going to lose Kentucky, but it's that type of voter that people are looking at and going, wow, if a Republican lost in Kentucky, a very, very red state where Trump won by 30 points, what does that say about the rest of the country? I don't think it says that much because that type of voter does, and it's not conscious, a lot of it's subconscious, does make a distinction between a state and local office where the U.S. military has nothing to do with it and their vote for commander-in-chief. And taking this out of the theoretical and putting it into the practical, that's the type of person, the type of person who I'm talking about here, a person who identifies traditionally as a Democrat but doesn't like where the Democratic Party is and votes, say, for Trump in 2016 for president, that person ain't voting for Elizabeth Warren for president whether they live in Kentucky or West Virginia or more relevantly in the panhandle of Florida or uh, in the middle of the state of Pennsylvania, the two key states that are going to determine this election. So I I am not someone who necessarily thinks, aha, uh, Trump is dead because of what happened in Kentucky last night. He might be more concerned about what happened in Virginia and in Pennsylvania where it's very, very, very clear, and there's some evidence of this in Kentucky, that the suburbs, not the rural areas, but the suburbs just outside the cities, an area where Republicans have always done very well, Republicans are getting wiped out. That Republicans have lost the suburbs, and specifically they've lost the soccer moms. They've lost the soccer moms, and it's going to be very difficult to get them back. Will the soccer moms vote for an Elizabeth Warren? I think a lot of them probably will. They'd be more likely to vote for a Joe Biden than they would an Elizabeth Warren. But it's important to point out that when you're interpreting statewide offices like governor, it's not the same thing as president because you've got the commander-in-chief element. And that's where somebody, especially people in, in Kentucky, Pennsylvania, Florida, that kind of place, they want a strong leader as commander-in-chief, and Trump projects being a strong leader. Now, it's not my definition of a strong leader, but the perception is that he's a strong leader. Correct. And that's all that matters. Uh, I have a whole theory about this that I'll get into some other time, that, um, that the creators of South Park did a brilliant job of articulating in, in, their, in their movie uh, about Kim Jong-un, uh, Team America. If you go to the end of the movie Team America, there's a very, very graphic, I'm sure you can find it on YouTube, there's a very, very graphic depiction of uh, human genitalia and uh, how different groups of people fit into different categories. Well, let's be clear, Trump's a dick, but a lot of times people like a dick uh, in, in a particular situation. And one place they want a dick is when it comes to being commander in chief. And so uh, Trump's a dick, but sometimes people want that. And that's going to help him. And I wrote a column this week, which you can find again at Individual One Pod uh, Twitter handle, where I make the argument that based upon a brand new New York Times battleground poll, that uh, Trump still has a very good chance at re-election. Now, it's very interesting. There's two major polls out this week, the New York Times battleground poll and the Washington Post national poll. The national poll for the Washington Post is a complete disaster for Trump. Correct. It has everybody wiping him out head to head. Everybody wiping him out. Joe Biden does it more dramatically than the other major candidates. I think like 
15, 16 points, something crazy like that. But everybody, everybody is beating Donald Trump. And Trump is stuck at 41, 42 percent, which is basically his approval rating. Now, if the Washington Post poll is correct, then the New York Times battleground poll, which I wrote about in that column, is irrelevant. And this goes back to an analogy I've used before that I think is really pretty good, if I don't say so myself. It's a really important analogy for trying to figure out what's going to happen in next year's elections. Here's the analogy. I have two young children who love going to Disneyland. My, my seven-year-old is very excited, my daughter, because she is now over 48 inches tall. And when you're over 48 inches tall, you can go on most of the really good rides at Disneyland. Is Trump's support going to be over 48 inches tall? And what I mean by that is, is he going to get to ride the ride? The Washington Post poll indicates no. He's not going to get on the ride. He's not allowed on. He can't even really engage in a legitimate competitive campaign where Pennsylvania and Florida are the key elements. Because if he's really losing nationally in a popular vote by 13, 14 points, it's a wipeout. Pennsylvania and Florida don't even matter. If he somehow won those states, he's going to lose elsewhere. Uh, He's going to get wiped out. Arizona, uh, North Carolina, maybe even, who knows, Texas are all going to be competitive under that scenario. And therefore, it doesn't matter. The rural voters in Pennsylvania and Florida, they lose their power because he can't even get into a competitive race. But the New York Times battleground poll indicates that he is tall enough. His support is tall enough to get into a competitive race. And under that scenario, he's still very potent. He is still very viable. And that's where I wrote the column about. Because when you look at Pennsylvania and Florida, I, all I ever ask is, under the worst case scenario, please tell me how the Democratic opponent is going to beat Trump in either Pennsylvania or Florida. I'm willing to cede Wisconsin and Michigan, which Trump won in 2016, had no business winning. Please just tell me, people who are in favor of Elizabeth Warren, how does she beat Trump in either Pennsylvania or Florida? Because if she doesn't do that, she can not win Correct. Under, under the scenario where Trump's support is large enough for him to be competitive. So please tell me, and no one will do it. I had a conversation with Congressman Yarmouth about this uh, on the telephone on on Sunday night, and he thought everyone could beat Trump. I said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You mean to tell me that in Pennsylvania, a a state that Trump won, uh, where Hillary actually had pretty good turnout in 2016, you're going to mean to tell me that Hillary loses to Trump. Let's be clear, Trump was not an incumbent then. Hillary actually had some ties to the state of Pennsylvania. Her father was a quarterback at Penn State University on the football team. Uh, so so here, and she's more qualified than Elizabeth Warren. Uh, Warren is more liberal than her. So you mean to tell me that a progressive from Massachusetts who pretended during her entire academic career to be a Native American when she's actually a white woman and who wants to ban fossil fuels is going to go into Pennsylvania and beat Donald Trump? Come on. Really? Come on. Really, people? You cannot be serious. Is it possible? I guess it's possible, but you're going to bank the future of the country on that? Because if she doesn't win Pennsylvania and she doesn't win Florida, which is... still a steeper hill to climb, then she can't win. She cannot win. And I just wish someone would give me the argument. Give me the argument. How does she win Pennsylvania or Florida? Because if she doesn't, she can't do it. Now, Joe Biden clobbers Donald Trump in Pennsylvania. He's basically from Pennsylvania. He's going to get huge black turnout, which Warren would not, in Pennsylvania. And in rural, in the rural parts of the state, he doesn't scare anybody. That's the key. You can't scare the crap out of the white rednecks that they think all their stuff's going to be taken. That you know, they you know, they want their they're, they're, the white rednecks are a weird voting block because they're basically socialists. They want all sorts of free crap from the government, but they don't want the black people to get the free stuff. That's that's and and Biden doesn't scare those people. Warren would. 
he also looks like a guy who, who you would trust as the commander-in-chief, which I just I was referencing earlier. So I continue to believe, even though the New York Times polling indicates that Biden has lost some of his general election superpower, thanks to the Ukrainian dastardly gambit that has effectively worked, just not in the way that was intended by, by the Trump people, he is still the best bet. But whether or not he actually gets the nomination, I, I am not optimistic about it all at all. And as I said in the last podcast, I think uh, South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg is, is poised for an, another run here and actually has a slim path to the nomination. Uh, if I had to guess at this point, I think we're headed to a four-way death match battle between Warren, Biden, Buttigieg, and Sanders. And under that scenario, who the hell knows what happens because it might end up as a brokered convention, all of which is going to help Trump. So the key question here is, does Trump have enough support to get in the ballgame? to be allowed on the ride. We don't know that yet because it depends on how the poll is done. There are some problems with that New York Times poll. It might have been biased against uh, Democrats a little bit. Who, you could make the same argument that the Washington Post poll was biased in favor of Democrats. We need more data. We meet, need more data. But that's the key question. I don't have an answer to that yet. Uh, but um, I, I, will, I will say that uh, this, the, the, what we do know is that this Ukrainian bogus story has had an impact on Biden. And Washington Post is reporting that Senate Republicans may actually try to use the impeachment trial to go after Joe Biden. Really? I, I, it's unbelievable. It's just flat out ridiculous. But, but this is how the bad guys win. This is how Trump is getting exactly what he wanted, just not from Ukraine directly. He's, he's being able to get this into the bloodstream and get the state-run media to repeat this over and over again, and I do think it's having an impact. How much? We don't know, but it's having an impact both in the Democratic race as well as in the general election polling. So we, we, on that note, as we finish every episode of the Individual One podcast, here's an update on the, uh, the two uh, percentages that we, we focus on during each episode. Number one is what are the chances – that Donald Trump will not be able to finish his first term in office. I'm going to put that at 12 percent, a slight uptick and a slight downtick uh, based upon the uh, results last night in Kentucky and in Pennsylvania and Virginia in his chances of being reelected, which I will put at 42 percent. So 12 percent chance he does not finish his first term in office, 42 percent he does get a second term, which I still believe would be catastrophic to the future of the United States of America. On that happy note, please remember to subscribe, rate, review, and share this show via social media. Follow us on Twitter at Individual Number One Pod. That's Individual One Pod. Until uh, Sunday, my name is John Ziegler. You're listening to the Global Story Network.